In the beginning of the story, Mordechai is tested. He is ordered with everyone else at court to bow down to Haman, and though Mordechai has already shown his ardent loyalty to Achashverosh, this one order was not obeyed. Here he stands as a proud Jew, refusing to honor an enemy of his people. Then, several chapters later, a scene unfolds in reverse. Now Haman is ordered by the king to honor the Jew. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 266, Rembrandt's Haman. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the Hermitage hangs a painting, created, we are certain, by none other than Rembrandt von Rehn. It is also assumed, to a virtual certainty, that the old master is giving us a scene from the Hebrew Bible. But what scene exactly? Strikingly, even a brief Google search will reveal a debate. Wikipedia will give this painting one title, whereas the standard description given of it today is often something else entirely. In the 1960s, the art historian Madeleine Kahn opened her piece on the painting with the following reflection, quote, Renowned amongst the treasures of the Hermitage Museum at Leningrad is a large painting whose emotive power, figure types, broad brushwork, and radiant color, illumining, shadowy space, all support the validity of signature that can be seen in the lower right, Rembrandt, and the date that is generally accepted. The subject of the painting, however, is problematic. No iconographic parallels have been found in art of any school or period, and its unusual composition adds to the mystery of its meaning. In all of Rembrandt's oeuvre, there is no other picture in which the characters represented fail so utterly to be unified by a common action or focus of attention, end quote. So, what scene are we seeing? Kahn further tells us that the earliest recorded name for this painting is Haman's Condemnation, and though that was as far back as 1772, it is also a full century after the painting was created. Kahn also reports that though the painting entered the Hermitage collection at the beginning of the 20th century under the name biblical subject, it was still assumed that this was a scene from the Book of Esther, and that the man who dominates the canvas is Haman, and the man behind him, Achashverosh. However, at the time when Kant's piece was written in the 1960s, the title accorded by the museum had changed to David and Uriah. Now, at the museum, it has been ascribed to the Book of Esther again. If so, what scene from the book is it? The answer, I think, not only shows us Rembrandt's insight, but also teaches us something profound about one of the central stories in the book of Esther itself. Let us assume, in studying this painting, that Rembrandt is giving us a scene from the book of Esther. And assuming that the man at the center of the canvas is indeed Haman, we must be looking at a scene where the villain of the story experiences a significant setback. If we go with one of the earlier titles, Haman's Downfall, we may then further be tempted to assume that what we are looking at is the moment that Haman is about to be hung. But if that is the case, why would Esther not be in the scene if she is so central to that moment in the story? This leads us to the obvious conclusion, which is that the painting must present us with an entirely different scene, one also involving a defeat of Haman. Let us look at the middle of the book. Following the decree against the Jews, Esther enters the king's throne room and invites him to a party with Haman. This, as we will discuss tomorrow, incurs the jealousy of the king, which explains his unrest on his bed that evening. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Achashverosh. And the king said, What honor and greatness hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There has been nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. 
So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? Haman, thinking the reward would come to him, suggests that it involved being placed on the king's horse and paraded through the streets. The king accepts that idea and bestows that reward upon another. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordechai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Haman obeys the king, and presumably, at this point, he would have turned away from the king to go honor Mordechai as commanded. This, I think, is the moment that Rembrandt is giving us in this painting from the 1660s. That is what we are looking at. Haman has received his order. He has been told to honor Mordechai, and he turns away from the king utterly downcast, or as he is described in the Megillah a little bit later, avel v'chafui rosh, mournful, woebegone. That is why Esther cannot be seen on the canvas here, for she is not in this scene at all. In her own article on the painting, Madeleine Kahn does cite such an approach, writing that, quote, the Hermitage painting, as a matter of fact, does illustrate perfectly the climax of a different Old Testament passage, another earlier episode from the story of Esther. On the night of the first banquet which the king and Haman attended, Achashverosh, sleepless, had the book of records of the Chronicles read to him. Khan adds, The Hermitage painting represents the earlier scene as Haman leaves to do the king's bidding. A servant of the king is present. Esther is not. End quote. Thus, what we see in this scene is Haman immediately after the order, and the third man in the painting is the one who has been asked to read to the king from the book of records, through which the king was reminded of his debt to Mordechai in the first place. And the point here is, I think, profound. Professor Jonathan Grossman has written that, quote, a fundamental question with regard to this image of Haman leading Mordechai on horseback through the streets is, what is the point of it? What need is there for this scene? Every other scene in the narrative serves in some way or other to advance the plot. In this scene, however, it would appear that the plot could develop just as well without the image of the horse, end quote. The answer, perhaps, can be found in what occurs earlier in the text, the scene that sets the entire story of the assault on the Jews into motion. The king orders all at court to honor Haman, his new vizier, and Mordechai refuses. Mordechai does not bow down to Haman. And at first, Mordechai's actions are mystifying. Mordechai is loyal to the monarch. He has just saved the king from the regicidal plot of Bigtan and Teresh. Why then would he not bow down to Haman if the king is so ordered? Rashi, sensitive to this question, suggests one Midrashic view, that Haman made himself into an idol. And therefore, Rashi writes, that honoring Haman would have violated monotheism itself. And while this is a possibility, the simple meaning of the text would indicate that it was merely bowing down to Haman that Mordechai was ordered to engage in. And there seems to be no particular problem with Jews bowing down in homage to other human beings as a sign of respect. Abraham himself, the very father of monotheism, is depicted as doing so. Why then did Mordechai not bow? If the concern is not idolatry, another possibility presents itself for explaining Mordechai's actions, which is pride in his own heritage. Haman, we are told by the book of Esther, was an Agagite, which references the king of Amalek, the historic enemy of the Jews. This, I think, is being told to us to emphasize Haman's own hatred of the Jews. Mordechai, it would seem, knew how Haman felt about the Jews. There would have been no religious prohibition violated had Mordechai bowed, and indeed it might have seemed the politically prudent thing to do. For in response, the enraged Haman proves that Mordechai was indeed right about Haman's Jew hatred, and Haman targets not only Mordechai but the entire Jewish people. But Haman's hateful response only further explains why Mordechai did not bow. Knowing, perhaps, how Haman felt about the Jewish people, Mordechai just could not honor him while still remaining proud of who he was as a Jew. 
And as Rabbi Yaakov Medan writes, in taking this action, in showing Jewish spirits, Mordechai may have been reflecting what was missing from some of his brethren, who were now dispersed across Persia. Such Jewish pride, connection to one's past, is, in Rabbi Medan's words, quote, the glue unifying the Jewish people in the diaspora. Without it, if the Jews were to bow down to every tyrant of the day, they would indeed become a people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people. And Rabbi Maidan adds that we do not find that Mordechai's generation was steeped in idolatry. It is therefore difficult to assume that the axis around which the book of Esther revolves is the prohibition of idol worship. On the other hand, we do find that the generation was marked by low Jewish self-esteem. End quote. It's with this in mind that we can understand why the story of Haman parading Mordechai on the horse is so important and why it's so interesting. Why Rembrandt might have found it worthy of his brush and his canvas, worthy of being one of his final beautiful biblical paintings. The tale of Haman honoring Mordechai is the parallel to the earlier refusal by Mordechai to honor Haman. The book of Esther is asking us, who is so confident of what he represents that when pressed he will not submit? In the beginning of the story, Mordechai is tested. He is ordered with everyone else at court to bow down to Haman, and though Mordechai has already shown his ardent loyalty to Achashverosh, this one order was not obeyed. Here he stands as a proud Jew, refusing to honor an enemy of his people. Then, several chapters later, a scene unfolds in reverse. Now Haman is ordered by the king to honor the Jew. Had Haman's similar spine to Mordechai, had he been as committed to his anti-Semitism as Mordechai was to his Jewishness, Haman would not have submitted. But submit he did, and Rembrandt is capturing for us that very moment. What seems extraneous to the story is actually a turning point and one of its most interesting moments. Professor Grossman, in this regard, quotes Rabbi Mordechai Sabato, who makes this point, writing that prior to this tale, quote, Haman could claim that were he given the opportunity, he too would violate the king's command and would not bow before Mordechai. For this reason, there is a need for a further confrontation, a confrontation in which Haman is commanded by the king to show submission before Mordechai. This confrontation is realized in the episode of The Horse where Haman is commanded to run in front of Mordechai. He is commanded, and he submits. End quote. And similarly, Maidan comments that if Mordechai's refusal to bow was linked not to issues of idolatry, but to his Jewish identity, then we can understand how later in the text, quote, the book of Esther presents Haman's readiness to humiliate himself before Mordechai when he led him about on the horse. Surely Haman could have refused to comply with the king's order, just as Mordechai had refused to bow down to Haman and he could have informed the king that he refused to lead Mordechai's horse through the streets of Shushan. And Remedan adds, but Haman could not summon the courage to do that, and at that point Mordechai's victory over him became evident. End quote. Rembrandt, I think, understood this. He read the story through a psychological lens, and he understood that it was not the horse parade itself, but the submission of Haman right before, that is psychologically, literarily, politically, one of the most interesting moments in the story. If this is correct, then Rembrandt again reveals himself to be an astonishingly insightful reader of the biblical text. And one of the greatest testimonies to his artistic and exegetical genius can be found in this painting, once enigmatic, and now, hopefully for us, a source of enormous inspiration. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week, wishing you a Shabbat Shalom, signing off.